0: Not so long ago, Turkey appeared to be the model, a Muslim-majority nation that was becoming free, democratic, and prosperous, a NATO ally, a friend of America and Europe. Today, all that is very much in doubt. To discuss Turkey's trajectory in the aftermath of elections that have strengthened the hand of President Erdogan, I'm joined by former U.S. Ambassador to Turkey Eric Edelman, FDD Senior Fellow Icon Erdemir, and FTD Research Analyst Merve Tahiralu. I'm Cliff May, and this is Foreign Policy. Either the U.S. enforces some
1: rules in the world, or there are rules. Every U.S. Risks. President has tried to diminish tension with Russia, has reached out to the Russians. Most of those have failed, especially when Vladimir Putin became the leader. We're still killing
2: guys who joined the Jihad in 1979 or 1980 or 1981.
0: Ambassador Emil, I'm going to start with you and start with this pretty simple question. It Basically, President Erdogan has won a very decisive victory here, hasn't he? Well, Cliff, I'd say yes and no. Uh, it's a decisive victory in the sense that
2: the constitutional changes that he put into place uh, through the victory he had in uh, the referendum a year ago that created a so-called executive presidency for Turkey means that, as a result of this election, he is gonna have virtually unchecked power with very little uh, to provide any balance in the Turkish political system for him. On the other hand, if you consider what the monitors, the election monitors from the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe said in their report, that this was not a free and fair election.
0: Not a free and
2: fair election. Right? That, the, that the media was heavily, media playing field, mm-hmm. was heavily tilted in favor of President Erdogan mm-hmm. and his party, the AKP. The AKP. Um, when you consider the fact that the election was held under a state of emergency that's been in place for uh, over uh, almost two years now, uh, dating back to the coup in the summer of coup attempt in the summer of 2016, uh, which has led to the detention of uh, 100,000 people and the jailing of something like 40,000 people, uh, when you consider the fact that the uh, OSCE monitors. Uh, found all sorts of incidents of, of ballot tampering, although we can't say exactly how uh, prevalent that was because the opposition chose not to contest the election. When you put all those things together, in the end of the day, Tayyip Erdogan was still only able to get 52.6% of the vote for president. What it shows is that, um, although he is going to have a lot of political power personally, that Turkey remains a very, very deeply divided society, uh, and it, it is not, I think, a formula for continued stability in Turkey for a lot of reasons we can talk about.
0: And Mervey, let talk about the, the, what happened on the parliamentary side. His AKP, his uh, Progress and Development Party, did not win a clear majority, but they have an ally, so they will have a majority with that ally. Talk about what that means and who this ally is.
3: That's exactly right, Cliff. Uh, The AKP, Erdogan's party, actually got around 42% uh, for the the parliamentary elections. And this has been pretty low for the AKP, given their performance over the last 16 years. And so this was very much a loss. And in fact, they don't have a simple majority in parliament, which means they won't be able to, as a, a party pass legislation very easily. But you're right, they do have these uh, ultra-nationalist allies in Parliament, and this party is known as the MHP. Um, they have enough seats that together with the AKP, if they work together, they could then pass uh, legislation because they together they pass this, the simple majority needed in Parliament. Um, what this means at this point is that Erdogan, Erdogan's party itself won't be able to make unilateral decisions easily, but It will have to defer to their ultra-nationalist allies in parliament to make certain decisions. And I think that's overall bad news for both Turkey and for Turkey's foreign policy, given that this is a party, that the ultra-nationalist party is highly suspicious of the West um, and Turkey's relations with NATO, highly suspicious of Turkey's relationship with the United States, and and also um, pretty much against any reconciliation process with Turkey's Kurdish citizens. and the, and the Kurdish, um, what, what Turkey calls a terrorist group, the PKK. So in all these fronts, and especially for civil liberties domestically, the, the fact that the AKP now has to ally with the ultranationalists doesn't bode well for Turkey. This will be an alliance between Islamists and ultranationalists, and that's just bad news.
0: And just developing that point a little bit, icon um, where does... Erdogan disagree with the MHP, and where does he agree with them? Where will they have where will they have conflict if, they're go- if there's going to be any, or do they simply reinforce each other's bad tendencies? And when I say bad tendencies, I'm speaking about ultranationalism, as Mervy has referred to, and Islamism. Um, and perhaps we should define that term. I take it to mean the imperative that only Muslims can rule, and the rule must be based uh, on on Islamic values as interpreted by In this case, Erdogan mostly, I suppose.
1: Actually, Erdogan and the far-right MHP uh, come from uh, different uh, parts of the Turkish political spectrum, and there are clear differences, or there used to be clear differences, for example, concerning the Kurdish question. Uh, However, over the years, uh, I think as Erdogan uh, felt increasingly insecure about his future, about his family's future, uh, with the the graft probe, uh, with uh, the, the ensuing scandals. Uh, he has been held hostage uh, by Turkey's uh, far right, uh, which is very influential in the judiciary, uh, in the security apparatus. So we see a, an increasing convergence of Erdogan's policies and Bahçeli's policies. As Erdogan uh, gave up uh, the Kurdish peace process as Erdogan uh, basically uh, adopted the same hardline Turkish nationalist language as uh, Bahçeli and the MHP. Uh, so I, I think we see, uh, you know, two uh, kind of bedfellows who are in, in a way bringing out the worst in one another. On, on the one hand, we see a, a hardline Turkish nationalism uh, that is resilient to any change vis-à-vis the Kurds. And on the other hand, we have a very zealous Islamist neo-Ottoman uh, force uh, that is uh, getting further boost uh, from far-right support.
0: So, you're, we're, in a way, you were talking about a, uh, Erdogan, whose ideology of Islamism is, I think we can say, supremacist and ultra-nationalism. Now, if we think what about that, what, that, what e- that evokes, I noticed that the uh, the phrase that was being used was one nation, one flag, one country, one state. I have to say that reminds me of a phrase, Ein Volk, Ein Reich, Ein Führer, one people, one empire, one Führer. Um, am I going too far, Ambassador Edelman, to make that connection? Well, yes and no. <laughs> <laughs> no.
2: Um, Erdogan has not committed genocide yet. Um, so you know the, but the the basic point uh, I think is is right, which is that what the mix of ideologies that is now governing Turkey is uh, extremely I think dangerous, <laughs> particularly in light of the um, ongoing Kurdish question, which, which has been a major, uh, you know, a major. Fracture line in Turkey for 40 years, and which has led to uh, a um, insurgency that has cost about 40,000 lives in in uh, in Turkey's history. You know, one one point though that we haven't I mean I agree with you know what Merve and I have been saying. One point we haven't touched on is that is going to be new is that. This will be the first time in essence since 2002 when the AKP first came to power in Turkey that it won't be governing alone. There was a brief period uh, from June 2015 to November when they lost their majority in parliament, but Erdogan frustrated the formation of a new coalition government, so they were governed uh, by a technocratic government for that period of months until there was a new election. But he's going to have to this time have a, a, a real coalition with another party and uh, how that works out, I mean, is, is going to be uh, interesting to watch. And I think nobody really knows for sure how it's going to work out. I mean, the, the ideological mix, as, as um, Merve and Ikon have been describing, is, I think, quite toxic. But how the politics of this will work out in practice, I think, uh, remains to be seen. Uh, there could be some tensions that emerge. Uh, and it could actually contribute even more to what I fear is going to be continuing instability.
0: In terms of the ideology, you would agree that it's a, it's a fairly toxic brand of Islamism that Erdogan represents, and that phrase that he uses and uh,
3: one way he has been showing that to his supporters around the world and in Turkey is by making these four-finger signs where you put four fingers up and it's called the Rabia sign, and it does come to denote the International Muslim Brotherhood sign. But since the failed coup in Turkey, so over the last two years, and as as the as Erdogan turned a bit more nationalist at home, he has begun to employ this exact uh, uh, phrase that you mentioned, the one nation, one flag, one country, one state. Saying that that is in the the four finger sign. In fact, means those four things. To me, this speaks to exactly what the uh, the message he wants to bring out. It's both a mix of Islamism and Turkish nationalism under unified, a monolithic people with with one leader um, and with global ambitions. So it just shows you what that phrase and what the sign means.
0: One of the reasons that he won, according to a lot of analysts, is that uh, people th- see him as a as a strong custodian of the economy, and he has said that he wants the economy to be in the top 10 economies in the world. That's one of his ambitions. In fact, however, tell me if I'm wrong, Icon, the economy is not doing all that well. The lira is down about 20% over the course of the year, foreign exchange is a Somewhat exhausted, investment I don't think is up, Uh, are people not perceiving what's actually going on with the economy correctly? Uh,
1: Yes, indeed, Erdogan's rise to power was through the economy. Uh, When Turkey was receiving ample foreign direct investment uh, in Erdogan's first, uh, let's say, five to six years in power, things were going quite well uh, for the average citizen. Uh, But lately, um, Turkey is suffering from current account deficits, devaluation in the Turkish lira, rising unemployment, double-digit inflation, uh, capital flight, brain drain. So all the makings of an economic crisis, Uh, there are two factors mitigating this. One is Erdogan is pumping money into the economy, so the economy is on life support, and until the elections, it survived. And second, uh, all of this experience uh, actually makes it to the people through an Erdoğan-controlled media. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know people are often aware of what is in their pocket or what's not there, uh, but still, uh, when the media uh, 24-7 uh, pumps a, a language of, you know, Turkish superiority, you know, Turkish, Turkish might, uh, you know, the, the economy on the rise, um, y- you can pretty much uh, turn black into white and white into black. So this is the magic of Erdogan. His almost complete domination of the print, broadcast, digital media, and social media um, is quite unprecedented.
2: Underneath all of this lurks, I think, real fear on Erdogan's part. I and mean, I think he continues to uh, be a, a very nervous autocrat um, and if you look at the economy it's one one example so Erdogan had said before he made the decision this spring to advance the presidential and parliamentary elections from 2019 to this June that he would never do that 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 was a sign of an immature democracy and that uh, and he, but he did do it and the reason he did it was fear of the deteriorating economy and what that would do to his political prospects and so there is I think still some f- fear underneath it, and, you know, I have watched him for a long time. Um, you know, I thought his body language on election night was quite interesting, even while the um, news media, the um, Anadolu Agents, the uh, press, uh, government press agency, state press agency, was broadcasting news of a major victory with actually higher totals than he actually got in the end. Um, he seemed actually very downbeat. And I think that was because, as I said earlier, he only ended up with 52.6% of the vote. And his party actually, as Merve said, lost ground in the parliamentary election uh, at the expense of the MHP. And I think that was largely a result of the nationalism he himself drummed up, particularly with regard to events in Syria next door. So, uh, I think an uneasy lies the head that wears the crown, as it were. So, uh,
1: when we take a look at the results, we also see another interesting fact. Erdogan lost 8 percentage points. Erdogan's party lost 8 percentage points since the November 2015 elections. And his far-right, MHP, lost also another percent. So, t- in, in total, this ruling alliance uh, lost 9 percentage points since November 2015 uh, elections. I would argue that... Part of that 9% loss uh, has to do with the economy. The Turkish citizens are already feeling the pinch. Um, Yes, the media gives a completely different picture. And uh, following up uh, on Eric, I would like to argue that Erdogan and Bahçeli pretty much knew what was in the making. So they probably thought, if we wait another year, we'll continue to bleed, and our 9% loss will become 19% loss when the opposition uh, wins fair and
0: square. Speaking of the opposition,
1: and you were an
0: opposition parliamentarian some years ago, what's the state of the opposition in the aftermath of this election?
1: I would argue the opposition uh, did better in the run-up to the election than after the election. Uh, In the run-up to the election, we have had unprecedented uh, coming together of the opposition. Exactly, (laughs) this is the first time in Turkish history that we had center-left, center-right, Uh, kind of moderate nationalists, uh, religious parties coming together uh, under the the same message that is a return to parliamentary democracy, lifting off the state of emergency, return to rule of law. And uh, they were very dynamic. Uh, They uh, got people out uh, to the streets again. Uh, And uh, there was, at one moment, serious belief that they could defeat Erdogan. Uh, And I think this is a good foundation uh, to follow up on. Uh, However, um, with the election, with the, 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 I I would argue, the trauma of the election night, I think they didn't handle that crisis well, and Mary will pick up from Well,
3: They didn't handle it well because it was uh a, A surprising uh, loss for the opposition, I would argue too, because the day before the the election on Saturday, uh, the opposition candidate had a massive rally in Istanbul where 5 million or more people showed up to it. And so it was pretty surprising, I think, on Sunday night when the results started to come. And that's when the opposition took a step back and said, hold on, we don't know if we can trust these results. We might actually contest these results. Uh, There might be election fraud. So eventually when all of that died down and finally uh, the, the candidate said I'm going to concede it looks like Erdogan won with you know, more than 50 if it's 52.56% uh, that's, a, that's a clear win for him and so when the opposition candidate withdrew and didn't make a speech it, ke- it kept a lot of the opposition electorate uh, kind of hung in the air I mean people were looking to hear what the opposition had to say about all all this, and people were holding their breaths for him to speak, and he didn't. He instead chose to make a speech the next day at noon. I think that was a bad decision. But then again, today um, we're seeing reports that he is thinking about going on a national tour again to, to speak to constituents, in, uh, especially in provinces where he wasn't able to tour during the campaign. So I think this might be uh, a signal that a, a long-term plan uh, it might be taking effect uh, um, for the opposition with this new leader who is pretty dynamic, as I can just explain. So there there might be uh, hope for the opposition if they can hold on to this momentum and materialize it into some new gains over the next couple of years, uh, especially for next year's uh, local election.
0: Though if you had to bet, uh, Ambassador, um, probably Erdogan is president for life at this point, is he not? Depends on how long he lives. Um,
2: <laughs> uh, you know, I think he will be um, president certainly until twenty twenty eight or twenty nine. I guess. Um, I think he, um, you know, there he has. There are health issues, so there is a question about his lifespan. I wasn't being totally facetious uh but i I do worry that this may be either the last or maybe the next to last uh, election that we might see in Turkey. I mean I you know he is representative of a broader trend that we see that uh, political scientists call electoral authoritarianism. Mm-hmm. You see it in Russia, you see it in Egypt, you see it in Iran um, and uh I noted that after the reelection of Vladimir Putin this Uh, past spring. Um, Some Russian political figures were saying, oh, his victory is so big, why do we even need elections anymore? The whole nation has shown that they love Vladimir Vladimirovich and he should just be president forever. Um, I don't rule out, I don't think you could do it on the basis of this most recent election, but after the next one, I don't rule out that you could start to see similar kinds of calls uh, in Turkey. Uh,
1: Actually, those calls have already started coming. In Turkey's Islamist press, uh, there have been uh, op-eds arguing that Erdogan might and should cancel local elections scheduled for March 2019. They're arguing local elections are just, you know, too much effort, leads to chaos, and Erdogan should just appoint mayors in Turkey. And uh, it's interesting that an idea which, which is so radical, so fringe, in the Turkish political context with, you know, decades of kind of ballot box tradition uh, can now be voiced uh, in, in kind of ma- now mainstream Islamist press.
0: And I may not re- recollecting correctly that Erdogan once famously said that democracy is like a streetcar when you get to your destination. You get off.
3: Yeah, he said that and uh, uh, many people didn't take that seriously and they figure that the fact that Erdogan was even participating in elections meant that Turkey's Islamists had changed course, that they had become democratic, that they, uh, you know, a lot of analysts, especially here in the U.S. bought the argument that uh, Erdogan uh, was now a conservative Muslim Democrat and no longer an Islamist. I think it's pretty clear after having Erdogan 16 years Years at the helm, uh, leading Turkey astray from NATO values, away from the West, away from the EU process that he himself started uh, pretty disingen- disingenuously about a decade ago. I think it's pretty clear now how he feels about democracy with the new constitution, with the way he's been handling himself and, and flaunting Turkey.
0: I'm going to, I want to get to this in the international realm, but one more question on this and that is, when I went I remember first going to Turkey or driving home past the Turkish embassy, what do you see in Turkey years ago and you see Kamal Ataturk and his great revolution and this towering figure from the 1920s who, from the ashes of the Ottoman empire built this republic that was forward leaning, that forward looking, that was European, that was secular, that was all sorts of things that we've been thinking about. That statue should come down at this point. Am I wrong? This is a counter-revolution. Is it not?
1: Ataturkism is, is over, am I wrong? Actually, uh, Cliff, I think Erdogan has heard you loud and clear. (laughs) And he has uh, taken down not only statues, but, uh, you know, as as you can imagine, uh, the name Atatürk is very ubiquitous in Turkey. You know, each city has at least a couple of sports venues, you know, stadiums, concert halls, uh, kind of buildings, squares, airports, ports named after Atatürk. And within the last 16 years, Erdogan has systematically eliminated almost each and every one of those uh, monuments, buildings, uh, sometimes on the premise that, oh, we need to renovate a stadium. And then once the renovation was over, he changed the name. So, Erdoğan is very clear that his project is the antithesis Uh, of Mustafa Kemal Atatürk's model of a kind of a secular Western-oriented republic. And in fact, right after election, uh, his closest aides uh, started sharing the news as the first president of the republic for Erdogan. So what they're referring to is after the amendments, there is a new regime in Turkey and Erdogan is the first president, that is, he is. He now replaces Atatürk as the first president.
2: And he, he constantly refers to the new Turkey that, that he is building. And his supporters have variously uh, described what's been going on since 2002 as the second republic or the third republic, depending on how you count uh, Turkish republics. Um, so yes, I think he's very explicitly uh, made this a, a, a counter-revolution uh, to roll back the Kamalist regime that was created, and after this election, he will have been in power l- longer than um, you know than Erdogan was in power.
0: And is he? And does he see this in terms of uh, the broader ambitions as a, a neo-Ottoman Empire that he is creating? Is he the neo-Sultan, if not the neo-Caliph,
2: or or both? Look, his supporters refer to him as El Reis. I mean, they've been calling him uh, you know, which means the leader. Um, yeah. The king. I mean, they've been calling him Sultan. They, mm-hmm. they. He's built a new presidential palace, fit for a Sultan, uh, with over fifteen hundred rooms. Um, That's a lot of beds to make. You know, uh, the one. A very good recent uh, biography of, of Erdogan by our our colleague at the Washington Institute, Sonar Cetin, is called "The New Sultan." Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you can, you know.
3: Judge for your, you can
2: judge for yourself.
3: Yeah, and he built himself a a, a huge palace uh, to live in, which he calls the palace now. So now that has become the new, the new uh, venue from which to rule Turkey, and uh, and and Erdogan also. Um, identifies with uh, uh, one of Turkey's last sultans, uh, Sultan Abdul Hamid. There is in fact a television show about it in Turkey. It's hugely uh, um, popular, but also extremely anti Semitic and has so many uh, historical facts wrong. And uh, this Sultan, Abdul Hamid, is, is known as the Red Sultan in history because of uh, his role um, and in condoning of the Armenian massacres uh, in the 1890s. And the fact that Erdogan identifies with this particular sultan, I think, says a lot. He was the most, I think, closest to the Islamist sultan. Um, if we look at the Ultima, all the Ottoman sultans of them, he's the most, you know, uh, Islamist, the one that uh, um, uh, basically uh, uh wanted to, to see a more Sunni uh, Muslim population uh, and wanted to ally uh, even outside the Ottoman borders with the Muslims abroad and, and really act as their leader. So the fact that Erdogan is looking at this man and identifying with, with his style, his policies, his ideology, I think speaks a lot about his ambitions both for within Turkey and abroad.
0: Ambassador, what would you be recommending that this administration consider in terms of its policy towards Turkey going forward? Well, um, you know,
2: I think the president understands, given his background um, in real estate, you know, location, location, location. (laughs) And uh, Turkey remains what um, Professor Paul Kennedy at Yale calls a pivotal state. I mean, you just have to look at a map to see that it sits astride – Um, the junction between Europe and Asia. It's, you know, um, it abuts Syria, Iraq, Iran, three countries with whom we have very serious business to do. It is a Black Sea literal state. It is a neighbor of Ukraine and Russia. Uh, It it remains an incredibly important country. That importance, I think, has led several administrations, including the one I served in, Bush 43 administration, to conclude that whatever inconveniences there are in the U.S.-Turkish relationship, whatever uh, things they do that we find obnoxious, and there have been a growing number of those things which we can talk about, um, that if you treat Turkey like an ally, ultimately they will behave like one. Um, and that clearly has failed. And it's you know it, it really is testing Einstein's famous definition of insanity as doing the same thing over and over again and, and expecting a different result. So I think I've said for a long time, and I believe now, we have to become just much more transactional with Turkey. We can't assume that if we do something nice or good for Turkey in one domain that it will lead to benefits for us in other domains where we have issues with Turkey. We're going to have to take every issue on you know, one for one and try and, and work things out. And we need to make Turkey aware of the fact that, despite its importance, we have other alternatives, other options in the region if they don't want to play ball with the United States. Um, and we have to, in some cases, impose some penalties on them for uh, acting in ways that you know, are counter to uh, both the values we supposedly share as NATO allies uh, and our interests.
0: I mean, right now, part of the controversy is over what sorts of military technology we should be providing the F-35. In particular, there are those in Congress who think Turkey should not be getting our most advanced aircraft at this point, um, particularly given uh, the fact that Erdogan is getting very close with Putin. and If Putin says, I'd like to take a look inside that piece of aircraft, do me a favor, I'm going to send some technicians down to do that, we don't know that he'd say no.
2: It's a very serious concern, and the um, the fact that the Turks are procuring the S four hundred air defense system, which is not compatible with from NATO, Russia. from Let's Russia, sure which is yeah, it's a Russian system that's not compatible with NATO equipment, is is extremely troublesome and worrisome. By the same token, this is a very difficult and complicated issue because the F thirty uh, five Turkey is a tier one member uh, partner in the F thirty five program, have been since the beginning of the program. Uh, some of the key parts as part of the offset arrangements with Turkey for the F-35 are made in in Turkey. So uh, we run risks here of, you know, raising the costs of the program overall to other partners uh, if this is delayed uh, and the parts issues could be a problem for other partners and for the U.S. So it's a very complicated issue. But the Turkish government ought to be uh, you know, very, very mindful of the fact that members of Congress are raising precisely this question. It's, I think, an indication of how much members of Congress have lost patience with this government and with some of the things it's done, including holding American citizens under trumped up charges, pardon the pun, of, uh, of uh, supporting uh, terrorism, uh, arresting Foreign Service nationals who work for the U.S. Embassy or its consulates. Um, holding other dual nationals on similarly flimsy pretexts. There's been a real loss of patience up on the hill, and I think that ought to be something that Turkish leaders take into account. I think it was particularly bad judgment on the uh, part of Ibrahim Kalin, who is a closest aide of of, uh, President Erdogan, to have tweeted out today uh, when um, Congressman Adam Schiff said he wasn't going to be celebrating uh, or congratulating President Erdogan's victory, his victory, uh, Colin uh, tweeted out, you know, you should just shut up, um, g- given the fact that there's a reasonable chance that the House of Representatives could change hands in November. Uh, that was a really foolish, impolitic thing for uh, Kellen to do. But I I think it's just typical of the kinds of difficulties we're going to have in the bilateral
0: relationship as time goes on. I think we should mention uh, Pastor Andrew Brunson, an American pastor, Protestant, been there for years. He's I think he's essentially been held hostage. The idea that we would sell them advanced aircraft at a time when an American citizen, for no reason, is being held hostage, strikes me as well rather outrageous. And, and that's one of the concerns that members of Congress have. Of course,
2: both Merve and I, and uh, Ike and I have, have you know written and published yes. on this on no. this question. Uh, this is a very uh, big issue. I hope. Uh, I know the White House suggested that um, President Trump was going to be calling um, President Erdogan soon uh, to congratulate him. I hope this is one of the subjects of that phone call.
1: And uh, for our audience, uh, Eric and I with great assistance from Mary have recently co-authored an FDD report on Erdogan's hostage diplomacy where we discuss Pastor Andrew Brunson and over 30 other Western nationals uh, who have been arrested since the failed coup of uh, July 2016 in Turkey, almost all on dubious charges. Uh, and Pastor Brunson's third hearing will be on July 18th, and Erdogan scheduled it on purpose for 10 days after the would-be runoff elections, Uh, I think uh, not only the US but also the whole world will be watching the hearing closely. Uh, Just as an update, uh, Pastor Brunson was not allowed uh, to bring in any witnesses, he had no access to his indictment for 17 months, and he had no attorney-client privilege. You know, we're getting
0: uh, getting low on time here, but one subject I definitely want to include. You would think, given uh, Erdogan's ambitions, that he would look on Iran as basically a rival. Uh, Iran, I would say, is obviously imperialist in the sense that it wants to dominate the Middle East and to the extent it can dominate the Islamic world. I think Erdogan wants to do the same thing. Both Turkey and Persia have had great empires in the past, and yet Erdogan seems to be very sympathetic and uh, is giving quite a bit of assistance to Iran in all sorts of ways.
3: Well, Turkey and Iran have historically been very good at compartmentalizing uh, their relationship, so uh, while the rivalry continues today in Syria, Yemen, and places uh, in Iraq and places uh, outside of that, it, more broadly in the Middle East, um, there is this economic relationship that FDD has worked uh, pretty hard on. Uh, and recently, this uh, trial of a, a Turkish banker has come to conclude with the verdict that, uh, in fact, uh, Erdogan's government played a huge role with uh, sanctions evasion, um, helping countries Companies and Iranian agents and Turkish through Turkish banks uh, surpass or evade uh, U.S. sanctions and international sanctions on Iran from roughly 2010 to 2016 until this uh, one gold trader uh, Reza Zarab was arrested uh, in 2016 and and until his arrest he said he was continuing his activities so till the day he was arrested uh, he was doing this and he was doing it using Turkey's state-owned Hulk Bank. Um, now that this trial is over, uh, that just took place in Manhattan, and there was a verdict issued right before the um, election, we're expecting uh, OFAC, the Treasury, the U.S. Treasury, to uh, issue a fine on Halk Bank. I'm not sure when that's going to happen, but that uh, appears to be in place uh, in, in the works. Um, and now that the election is over, I think we will uh, hear more about it. But even though this very high-profile <laughs> trial just essentially proved to the world uh, what, what Erdogan's government did, uh, Erdogan recently vowed to help Iran break sanctions again in the future. So uh, it's pretty interesting to, to see how things uh, will develop, but it also shows where his loyalties lie when it comes to the West versus Iran.
0: And by the way, helping Iran with sanctions is a, a thumb in the eye to the United States for sure, but also to his Arab neighbors who don't want to see Iran further empowered. Um, and the- And the Turkey. And, and, the Turkey, and yeah. for Turkey.
3: <laughs> Having a nuclear Iran right across the border does not bode well for Turkey.
2: <laughs> uh, when I was ambassador, and this is now a long time ago, this was 13 years ago, uh, was the insouciance of the people around uh, then Prime Minister, now President Erdogan, about the prospect of a nuclear Iran. Um, I mean, as as Merve was just saying, I, I can't think of anything that would be more damaging to Turkey's standing in the region than to suddenly wake up one day and have a nuclear-armed n- neighbor in, in, uh, in, in Iran. And yet, uh, you know, the coterie of people around Erdogan seem to think that this might be a problem for Israel or maybe a problem for the United States, but that it wasn't a problem for Turkey. And I think it goes to to uh, Merve's point about his fundamental orientation um, and even despite the Sunni-Shia differences notwithstanding, a, a fundamental orientation towards Islamism.
0: Do we not think that if the, there is a nuclear-armed uh, Iran that we would soon see a nuclear-armed Turkey as well?
2: Turkey's showing every evidence, as are, as are others in the region, of hedging behavior. Uh, in terms of procuring uh nuclear power plants and uh, ultimately from access russia and from russia and, and uh, South Korea and uh, w- you know obviously opening up the door potentially to access to the full uh, fuel cycle it's a it 's a classic hedging behavior and i you know i, I don 't think you would have a nuclear Iran without seeing a number of other nuclear powers in the in the region, possibly including turkey
1: cliff coming back to one thing you said uh you know The followers of Erdogan assume that this is part of Turkey's kind of great power game. But in fact, this is undermining Turkey's national security to a great extent. It's not only about a nuclear Iran. Uh, As you said, uh, Turkey's neighbors are not at all happy with what Erdogan is doing. So when we take a look at the eastern Mediterranean at this point, we are seeing uh, joint military uh, kind of maneuvers by Greece, Cyprus, Egypt, Israel, UAE. So a a, a number of countries who haven't uh, worked together before uh, seem to be uh, coming together. Um, So I think the average Turkish citizen should be thinking, what is Erdogan's play doing to Turkey? Why are we being isolated? Why are we uh, kind of help uh, a, a, a potential nuclear power evade sanctions nuclear weapons which could one day be turned against Turkish citizens themselves.
2: And and why are we aligned in an internecine uh, Arabian Gulf dispute? With Qatar, which is one of the leading supporters, has been one of the leading supporters of the Muslim Brotherhood around right, the world. But
3: um, Erdogan is behaving in the, on the international stage in the same way that he's behaving in Turkey—that is, as a populist leader. Um, who, and in the international stage, that means Turkey being an overwhelmingly Muslim country to to keep. Uh, acting as a belligerent uh, against the West what he sees as the West and that includes the, the UN Security Council, that includes the EU, that includes everything that Washington does and he's acting like he is the protector of all Muslims uh, including but not limited to Turkish Muslims against these you know nefarious Western actors that are trying to keep Turkey down and the Muslim countries down and he's behaving this way. His met- message is not cutting through to most people, and uh, and it, it is to, to many people, as we have seen after the Arab Spring, but it's ultimately not going to be too successful. And I think the main reason for that is Turkey... Can keep I don't know I can keep acting like this belligerent against uh, the West the same way that Putin does in Russia and Iran does but Turkey the fact is Turkey just simply doesn't have that economy it doesn't have any natural resources it doesn't have the same um, capabilities the hard power to back up what he's trying to do with this you know soft power rhetoric I think it's going to be a failure for him and, and I This is, again, uh, really bad news for Turkey because all it's going to do to Turkey in the meantime is uh, ruin its relationships um, with its traditional allies and move it further and further away from its uh, Western alliances. And uh, I think that's the sad part.
0: That's a good summation, uh, Mervé, and I think we'll have to let that be the last word. It's an unsettling situation, but it's a dynamic situation, and we'll want to utilize your expertise again in the future. Until then, thank you, Ambassador Edelman. Thank you, Icon. Thank you, Mervé. And thanks for listening. This is Foreign Policy. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Foreign Policy. As always, find and subscribe to our show on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher. If you like this week's episode and have feedback for us, please leave us a review on iTunes. We'd appreciate your thoughts and your criticisms, too. We hope you'll join us again in the future. But until then, I'm Cliff May, and you've been listening to Foreign Policy.